Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Brian Bella. We're devoting this week's show to a discussion of the far-right rally last weekend in Charlottesville. Well, this ugly scene unfolded just moments ago. From what we understand, clergy members have just arrived at Emancipation Park. A 32-year-old Charlottesville woman was killed and at least 19 other counter-protesters were injured during clashes with white supremacists on Saturday. Several hundred far-right activists also held a torch-lit rally on the campus of the University of Virginia Friday night. The message and the symbolism were unmistakable. The far-right rallies and violence in Charlottesville last weekend drew headlines around the world. But for those of you who don't know it, We are based here in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. What happened here happened in our backyard. I was there, and this is what I saw. Knots of white men carrying semi-automatic weapons, carrying baseball bats, carrying shields, and frankly, more frightening than the guns, although they were frightening, was the fascist iconography, the Ku Klux Klan iconography. And the crowd had just been dispersed by the police. They had declared a state of emergency because of fights that had broken out. And so these knots of men, some of them five, some of them 15 or 20, were standing on the hilltops. It it looked almost like the beginning of a film about the original Ku Klux Klan. Um, I I guess I never imagined that I would be seeing this kind of espousal of hate out in the open in the very places where, you know, I've hung out for a big part of my life. Hmm. Yeah, and if you go to Charlottesville today, um, the signs of the weekend are all too clear to see. There's a street blocked off where the young woman, Heather Heyer, a young paralegal who was passionate about making sure that people had a fair chance before the law, was killed by the driver plowing into the counter-protesters. And you can go up to Emancipation Park, which not Mm. too long ago was Lee Park, and see signs that are calling for it to be named Heather Heyer Park. So it's rare that you can see so many strata of history uh, piled on top of one another in such a short period of time. But I know that uh, Joanne and Nathan saw these events unfolding on television, as the great majority of Americans did. And I'd be curious what it looked like to you folks. You know, these are the kinds of things that just grab you and sometimes can either energize you or, or leave you feeling very fatigued. You know, I actually have a very strong affinity for the city of Charlottesville. Um, I have great respect for the University of Virginia as an institution. Even before meeting Brian and later Ed, who I know worked there for a very long time, 
There was something about UVA as a space that seemingly was about the best part of American intellectual life. And so to look and see, you know, this kind of collapsing of the past with the torches and with the flags and with a very clear effort to evoke a, a very, you know, vitriolic form of American politics, seeing that on a campus that, you know, I always associated with some of the great intellectual things to ever come out of the state of Virginia. That was a bit jarring for me. It actually had an extremely powerful and I guess personal impact on me because I I got my graduate degrees at UVA. I lived in Charlottesville for a number of years. So I have personal ties to it. And as a historian, I knew that in a sense what I was seeing wasn't new. And as an American... I knew on a certain level that what I was seeing wasn't surprising. Mm. As someone here in America in 2017, to see it so brazen and emboldened and confident with the sense that they had that they've gotten endorsement from high levels of government and that that maybe in a way was the thing I found most upsetting and shocking of all of the many upsetting and shocking things. It was just the, it was so brazen. I just couldn't. It, it it broke my heart. It's not something I expected to see. Mm. Joanne, Nathan, Ed, I think we need to explain how this event fits into the larger stream of American history. It was a remarkable distillation of so much that's wrong <laughs> with American history that was paraded right before our eyes this week. So I'm willing to bet we can even find some things that are right with American history if we look hard enough. Well... <laughs> Let's work our way toward that, okay? Okay. So let's take the first pass uh, with wondering about the way that people struggle to find the right language to describe what we were seeing. Uh, It felt like as if we were making up new vocabularies along Mm. the way. I I wonder if you all could help me think about that. Joanne, looking at it from a broader perspective, what what struck you? Well, I guess one of the things that struck me is— You know, there are any number of of terms people are throwing around, KKK, Nazi, neo-Nazi, neo-Confederate. I mean, there's, we could make a huge list, but some of them, and Nazi is one of them, that word, although in popular culture, Nazi equals bad guy, in historical memory, Nazi equals bad guy, also in popular culture and historical memory, Nazis aren't Americans. Right. And Mm -hmm. that term to me masks the part of this that we have to most aggressively grapple with, which is that these Mm -hmm. aren't thems. These are uses. These are Americans doing what they're doing. And I think it's too easy. I think it's a default position is to say, well, that's just them or that's just a small group or that's just. Well, I've been in conversations in which uh, people who had seen themselves as the keeper of Confederate iconography are distraught over the mixture of this alien Hmm. Nazi symbols alongside the Confederate ones because there's a sense among people who identify themselves primarily as descendants of the Confederacy that they lost something uh, in this sort of mashup Hmm. of iconography. Hmm. And on the other side, as we try to describe this, the phrase white supremacy is both accurate but seems so broad that it doesn't have as much of a bite as it needs to have. And the word racism, too. What words should we use to talk about what it is that we've been seeing here? 
I'm actually quite comfortable using the term white supremacy, although I recognize that it can be kind of everywhere and nowhere and that it loses some of its analytic specificity yeah, if you apply that's really it. what I meant. But. but in a case like the protests in Charlottesville, we should feel, in my opinion, at least as a historian, very comfortable talking about white supremacy when you have people saying themselves white power, when they're saying themselves that I am for the white nation or saying I'm voting for yep. the president precisely because of what he represents. So in that sense, it's kind of like the old adage, you know, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. Um, I tend to think it's quite okay to use it in, in that instance for sure. I find that very compelling. You know, one of the things that struck me in, in watching these events unfold has to do with the statues themselves. You know, I mean, there's the statue of Lee that's at the center of all this. The evening before, people were gathered around a statue of Thomas Jefferson. And um, what came to mind for me was there's a very famous print of New York City uh, towards the beginning of the revolution, and it's New Yorkers pulling down a statue of King George. Wow. It's a group of them, and they have ropes, and they're tugging, and they're pulling. And the the symbolism of that for the American Revolution was intensely powerful. And watching all of this swirling emotion around essentially these statues, it's a reminder, I guess it's a reminder among other things, of their iconic value and and the power of that. You know, somebody who's thought about these statues and studied the time that they were put up around the turn of the 20th century and what the people who put them up invested in them and believed that they were going to save forever and that they were forever going to hold up Robert E. Lee as the embodiment of, of Christian gentlemanly virtue. It's remarkable to see how in less than a decade they have come under assault. Now, we know from the newspapers at the time that black people, when these statues went up, said, no. This, this is not speaking for all of us. We know what this is. We know this is a symbol of your authority, your power, that you lost the war, but you're still holding on to this local dominion. And so African-American people had resented uh, and resisted these statues, but they had stood there mute from the viewpoint of most people. You know, they were like the furniture of mm-hmm. Charlottesville. Those statues you know, have lived here for a long time, and there they were. Uh, but suddenly— They have come under assault. So when the Lee statue in Charlottesville was put up in 1924, commissioned in 1917, that would have been a time when black voter turnout in Virginia would have been virtually nil. Mm -hmm. It would have been a time when Virginia passed the Racial Purity Act that established an office to maintain surveillance over people's birth certificates to make sure that nobody accidentally married a, quote, Negro, right? Mm -hmm. So the spirit in which these statues were put up were one of great confidence in the superiority and complete dominance of white people, right? So I think that's something else, that aura that surrounds them of certainty. Why is it that in the last few years, those statues began to speak to so many people in so many different voices and in contradictory voices? So when would you folks trace the beginning of this current moment in which we're listening to those statues. Mm. Honestly, I really do believe you have to think through the presidency of Barack Obama. Um, I I feel like this 
is an unavoidable kind of big bang for a new generation. I mean, I mean, you all were there, right? It, it changed the meaning of the American flag. It changed the meaning of the office of the presidency. It changed the meaning of the first family, certainly of things like the State of the Union address. I mean, the reverberations of that moment right, right. really galvanized core groups of the citizenry and caused them to speak in ways that are fundamentally different than before. So... We've talked a lot about the statues. I want to move, move on to other subjects. It, it is a fact that the alt-right was here under the pretext of protecting the statues, right? It was the mm-hmm. catalyst for all that. So what forces in American life legitimized all of these people coming to Charlottesville with the overt symbols of white supremacy and hatred and racial superiority, unembarrassed, apparently? What happened that made that seem possible or even desirable to these people. Donald Trump rarely is the answer to a a very sophisticated, complex question as the one you posed so simple. But there is no question that Donald Trump, who was given no chance of getting the Republican nomination, and Donald Trump, who was given little chance of winning the presidency, won the nomination and won the presidency with the support of these groups, playing footsie with these groups, refusing to condemn these groups until he was absolutely forced to do so. And every president in my lifetime has used their inaugural speech to reach out and in the most instrumental and pragmatic and cynical ways expand their base. To speak to their fellow (laughs) Americans. Their fellow Americans. You got it. My fellow Americans. (laughs) Donald Trump did just the opposite from day one. He doubled down, tripled down on the core of his base, these alt-right groups, and he did more. Donald Trump put in the office right next to him People like Steve Bannon, people who explicitly said they were running, in this case, Breitbart News, to provide a platform for the alt-right. So we're rarely simple-minded here on Backstory. But my answer to your question is surprisingly simple and straightforward, and people are just afraid to say that. I'm not dis- actually, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I also think another part of that has to do with the message that he's spreading in appealing to that base. And that is this idea that America breaks down into an us and a them, real Americans and fake Americans, right? That's, that's another thing that I haven't in my lifetime seen a president do, which is, as you suggested, Brian, play to just base and put outside of the circle of belongingness anyone who he doesn't like or he doesn't think agrees with him. So not only is he playing to that base, but then he's reinforcing their message. So I'm going to take an outlier position here um, and actually suggest that it, it really isn't about Trump at all, but but it's really about us right? as a country. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is very good at drawing attention to himself and believing that he is the kind of architect of pretty much everything <laughs> um, that, you know, he considers to be important. But, I mean, I think it's really important for us to, you know, own 
Donald Trump as a feature, frankly, of not engaging and more roundly condemning what has long been a history of dog whistle politics in this country since at least the 1970s. I mean, one of the the great contributions of the civil rights movement was that it, it drove overt racism out of public speech. It forced people to have to use all of these code words like, you know, tax reform or busing or law and order to try to, you know, stain entire states' rights. The states' rights, precisely, stain entire sectors of the electorate. And now, you know, we're expecting some kind of explicit condemnation of white supremacy from the White House. That's been 50 years in the making, that statement Donald Trump made. So what you're saying basically is he's tapped into a stream of thought um, that is powerful and flowing pretty strongly and that that's the question that we need to focus on and not so much the impact of tapping into that. I think so. I mean, that it's obviously true. And I, and, I, and I will agree with Brian on this, you know, very forcefully that, you know, Trump is kind of like our statues that we just finished talking about. Right. I mean, he, he's kind of a singular figure around especially whom, his hair <laughs> <laughs> around, around whom people can rally. And we should never underestimate the power of the presidency for precisely that reason. But I also think and we know this, right, that, that there's a lot that Trump is uh, reflecting more so than constructing. But. I still think the essence of where we agree with each other is that move from dog whistle or covert mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to overt and winning the Republican nomination and doing right. them and winning the presidency and then being the president right. and continuing to do, to do them. them. <laughs> it's not right. Donald Trump. It's us empowering us, we the people, Joanne, empowering Donald Trump to continue doing these things. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about, you know, Trump's own arrival on the political mm-hmm. stage, I mean, it begins in, in 1989 with him taking out a full page ad condemning five young African-American men who were accused of raping a jogger in Central Park, a white woman. They were put in jail and eventually exonerated. Um, And Donald Trump, even as he called for the death penalty against them for the crime of rape, which was not the law in the state of New York, he never retracted his call for blood, um, even when it was clear that these men were innocent. And then, obviously, his time as an independent reality TV star, an independent citizen, but using the bully pulpit of celebrity to really at least you know, fan the flames of a movement of, of suspicion about Barack Obama being a, a kind of Manchurian candidate from the, the dark nations of Africa. They thought he was Indonesian. They thought he was Muslim. They thought he was this or that. And Trump did a lot. And frankly, I would argue, began to build his political movement for five years during the era where Obama was trying to govern. And in, in all three of those examples, he was tapping a very old stream in right-wing American politics. And certainly now we should not be surprised that he's continuing to draw from that stream relative to the neo-Nazi and the KKK iconography we saw in Charlottesville just last week. Mm-hmm. And like any stream, it moves at slower and faster speeds depending on what obstacles it confronts and if the mm. channel is narrow or broad. So if you think about Charlottesville, on Friday night, the first night of the protest by the alt-right people, They walked in ways that were so jarring in two conflicting symbols, Mm. one on the hand of the archaic torches, right, that looked like the 19th century Ku Klux Klan. On the other hand, they are there in knit shirts and khaki pants and 
uncovered faces, which reminded me, Nathan, of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, in which they would brazenly walk down the streets of major cities across the United States. And so you found that this degree of anonymity or of assertion of identity has come and gone over the years, even as the spirit behind it, which is that this is a white man's country and we are determined to control it, has remained constant. Mm. So what do we do with the anti-Semitism that was so obviously on display in these marches? I I thought that, too, had sort of been driven out of American public life, if not private life. Well, that one hits pretty close to home. I'm not only Jewish, I grew up in a household where my father insisted that every day I had a guard against the return of the Holocaust. Over the course of my life, I learned to recognize that he was paranoid, and seeing Nazis marching in Charlottesville made me really wonder whether I was naive. We want to end the show with a letter. It was written by Alan Zimmerman, president of Congregation Beth Israel here in Charlottesville. His synagogue is a block away from Emancipation Park, where the statue of Robert E. Lee stands and where white supremacists rallied last Saturday. On Saturday morning, I stood outside our synagogue, one block away from Emancipation Park. With the armed security guard we hired after the police department refused to provide us with an officer during morning services. Even the police department's limited promise of an observer near our building was not kept. And note, we did not ask for protection for our property, only for our people as they worshipped. Forty congregants were inside. Here's what I witnessed during that time. For half an hour, Three men dressed in fatigues and armed with semi-automatic rifles stood across the street from the temple. Had they tried to enter, I don't know what I could have done to stop them, but I couldn't take my eyes off of them either. Perhaps the presence of our armed guard deterred them. Perhaps their presence was just a coincidence, and I'm paranoid. I don't know. Several times, parades of Nazis passed our building, shouting, There's the synagogue, followed by chants of Sieg Heil, and other anti-Semitic language. Some carried flags with swastikas and other Nazi symbols. A guy in a white polo shirt walked by the synagogue a few times, arousing suspicion. Was he casing the building or trying to build up courage to commit a crime? We didn't know. Later, I noticed that the man accused in the automobile terror attack wore the same polo shirt as the man who kept walking by our synagogue. Apparently, it's the uniform of a white supremacist group. Even now, that gives me a chill. When services ended, my heart broke as I advised congregants that it would be safer to leave the temple through the back entrance rather than through the front, and to please go in groups. This is 2017 in the United States of America. Later that day, I arrived on the scene shortly after the car plowed into peaceful protesters. It was a horrific and bloody scene. Soon, we learned that Nazi websites had posted a call to burn our synagogue. I sat with one of our rabbis and wondered whether we should go back to the temple to protect the building. What could I do if I were there? Fortunately, it was just talk. But we had already deemed such an attack within the realm of possibilities. 
taking the precautionary step of removing our Torahs, including a Holocaust scroll, our most prized possession from the premises. Again, this is America in 2017. You know, Joanne, I don't think it was just the people who built those monuments to last forever, to be strong so that they could never be torn down, who believe that there's certain constructs that are just permanent. I think the millions of people who built a dialogue of civility, who said there's certain things that shall not be said in public, there's certain threats that shall not be uttered, there's certain symbols that should not be waved. I think they really felt, and I'm one of them, that that will last forever. And sadly, Hmm. in my opinion, we're seeing these monuments being toppled as well. And I, I think that's the essence of what we're watching in this country today. But but I think we're also seeing people who very aggressively are expressing and stating and doing things that show that they don't agree with that toppling, right? So Absolutely. the other side of this is as as this is happening and as many people, including me, I agree with what you're saying, see certain things that I took for granted as being out of the picture, being pulled back in, there is a, a strong movement among Americans of a sense that this is not, this is wrong. This is not the way that we should be behaving. This is, this is a norm that should be protected. So, you know, it really leaves us at this moment that this is in so many ways a, a telling moment about us. And the question is really, what are we going to do about it? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Well, that's going to do it for us today, folks. Now, that was a difficult conversation in a lot of ways. And at the end of the show, we normally say you can keep the conversation going online. And I think we mean that particularly today. Let us know what you thought about the episode or ask us questions if you have questions about it. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Robin Blue. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Jazar and Ketza. Special thanks this week to Kelly Libby. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. We're a proud member of the Panoply Podcast Network. 
Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.